I'm not pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work Coronavirus Edition. Well, I've been doing some fun interviews while I've been stuck at home, so today is no exception. No exception. So uh, Sheldon Menry is here to join us. Hey, Sheldon. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I've been, I'll start with the question I've been asking everybody, which is, how did you learn to play Magic? How did you start playing Magic? Uh, I was at Gen Con in 1993, uh, and I knew Wizards of the Coast as, as a small, very good role-playing game company. Uh, I was heavily involved in the RPGA back then, uh, and I was at that Gen Con to run D&D games. Uh, so explain uh, what the RPGA is. I, you and I know, uh, but... It's the Role-Playing Game Association, and it was basically the sanctioning body for playing D&D at conventions. Um, and you could... You could level up. It wasn't like Living City yet. Um, that didn't come for a couple of years, I think. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was they wrote the adventures and gave you the characters to play in four hour blocks when you would go to uh, when you go to conventions, whether it was Gen Con or your small convention or whatever. And the RPGA would, you know, it was a network, so they would send you the adventures if you wanted to run them. Okay, so you're at Gen Con '93. So, okay, so what, what is that like? Well, Gen Con, back then, that was still in Milwaukee, and um, it was the, Gen Con was divided into four-hour time slots back then. So block one, block two, block three, so forth and so on. And uh, I think there were 13 blocks, and I was scheduled to, to GM 10 games. So I, had, I only had one block open to go to the dealer's room, um, when I was, when the dealer's room was open. So I had, I just had one chance to, to get to the dealer's room. And if you've never been to a Gen Con, the dealer's room is the thing. Even in 1993, when it was comparatively small um, to today, uh, it was a, you know, it was a site that, that every nerd needed to see. And uh, my ex-wife and I were walking through the hall. And uh, as I said, I knew, I knew Wizards of the Coast is a small RPG com- company. The um, I think the Primal Order was the supplement that they released. It was just like system agnostic, and they were just it was well written. And it was like, oh man, I'm gonna support this company. So I saw their booth, and there was a crowd around the booth. I was like, well, what's going on? So I wandered over there, and they were playing this. They were playing this card game. I'm like, oh, okay, some new game on the market. Uh, there weren't obviously there weren't really card games at that point. Uh, the closest thing was probably no, there were no real card games at that point. <laughs> and uh, it's like, oh, it looks cool. The art looks cool. So we grabbed a starter and a booster. Yeah, you know, after getting the nickel tour of what the game was, mm-hmm. like, oh, it seems inexpensive. We'll grab it. Got a starter and a booster, and opened the booster as we were walking away from the table, and. The first magic card I ever looked at was Time Walk. No. <laughs> Setting the bar high. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I said, I said, I don't know what the game is. You know, I don't know anything about the game yet, but I'm willing to bet this is a good card. <laughs> and we had driven, I was at I was stationed at the Pentagon at the time, and we had driven out with two of our friends from DC to Milwaukee. So it's at like a two-day drive stop in Indiana or something on the way. Um, and again, again, our schedule's already booked for Gen Con. So we put the magic cards in the 
in the loot bag and move on. And I remember Lisa and my our friend Tom sitting in the back seat as we were driving back to DC, trying to figure out how to play Magic. They they cracked open the starters mm-hmm. and um, a couple more boosters, and we're trying to figure out. So it's probably not a month before I try the game. Because, you know, we get back, you go back to work, you got stuff to catch up on, you, mm-hmm. you're, you're doing your other nerd things, and like, oh, oh, yeah, let's let's try to play that. And the first game I, of Magic I ever played, I was hooked from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Like, veteran bodyguard got me. I'm like, wow, veteran bodyguard, how can you lose? And then, and then for Prodigal Sorcerer, yeah, they're on a twenty turn clock. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, um, we started. We had a group. We had a, a a gaming society there in the DC area, DC Northern Virginia, and um, uh, people in that community started playing the game. And we were already running conventions and organizing other things. So it was just a natural. It was a, it was a natural continuation from what we were already doing to start running things. You know, the first tournament I ever ran was in the house and then we moved to the game shop and so forth and so on. So I started getting involved relatively early in running things. Mm-hmm. But then um, I was transferred to Belgium in 1994. So we took our magic cards with us and met a whole new society of magic players from there. So- and once again, got involved, got involved with running events. Uh, and the first, the first big event I went to was the first big GP in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And which was, was that the first GP? Too. Was Amsterdam the first GP? I think Amsterdam was the first GP. Yeah. Um, Brian David Marshall could probably could, could correct me if I'm wrong, but. I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was because it was supposed to be in Japan, and and for different reasons, it didn't happen and turned into something else. So I think Amsterdam was the first. Uh, and it was a it was like three hour drive from where we lived in Belgium, so it was you know convenient. We had friends there already. Um, so what's that? That was 1996 or so. Around five, 95, 96. Uh, so we drove up, and I and I didn't make day two, and I was wandering around looking for something to do because it's not you know it's a Magic GP, it's not Gen Con, it's not a giant dealer's hall or anything. Um, there's pickup games going on and stuff, but I walked past the Wizards of the Coast booth, and whoever was behind the booth was like, hey, do you know the rules of Magic? And I said, why, I think I do. He said, would you like to be a judge? I said, what does that entail? And he explained and said, well, I'm kind of already doing that. Like, well, then let's just, why don't you take the test and see? And back then, your judge level was set by how well you scored on the test. Yes. Well, I mean, the right the the the, the, the judge structural changed over the year. I mean, there were a couple of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So so I tested into level two. I missed level three by two points, and I tested into level two. So I actually never spent any time as a level one judge. Yeah. Um, and then uh, well, then of course. I got involved in the judge program and that became a thing. So when uh, one of the, the, the first time I remember interacting with you was at a pro tour because uh, you started judging. Sure. How'd you start judging pro tours? Um, the, I started judging the major events in, 
in Western Europe. So in Germany, Belgium, France, uh, the Netherlands. And the Netherlands was kind of the, the hot spot of the earliest days of European magic. Um, yeah, in fact, France and Belgium, I, I believe in the early yeah. days, France and Belgium were the two real hot spots. And if you look at the very first world championship, um, there were two, I think, two Belgians and a Frenchman in the top four. Yeah, yeah. Dominic Kuna was one of them because uh, he won the Belgian nationals twice. Um, yeah, but be- yeah, Belgium, Belgium was really uh, like an early adopter, uh, mm-hmm. and they were very, very good. So I was doing events there, and I got to know the the folks that were the organizers from the uh, Watsi Europe office, uh, mm-hmm. Ken Bontnik and uh, Misha Donders. Yeah. And then they were like, so you've been doing events and we'd like to recommend you for level three, but you have to go to a pro tour to test for level three. I was okay. Sure. And there was a pro tour in Mainz in Germany. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I, I had Matt and, place. I had Matt place on the show earlier. And so we, we talked all about him winning yeah. in Mainz. So it's, that's the castle uh, one for those that are, that's yeah. not, there is in a castle. Right. Yeah, it was in a castle <laughs> during a transportation strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hotel, the staff hotel had been over, had been double booked. Mm-hmm. There there was uh, airline something, something airline thing happened. And anyway, so so they invited me to, to Mainz to test for level three uh, at the Pro Tour. And, you know, the process was not as as... Um, structured as it is today. <laughs> Very polite. Uh, <laughs> they took me, um, Ken, Misha, Carl Crook, and a fourth person who I don't remember, took me into a room at midnight the day after my first full day on a pro tour. And that was, you know, you work from 8 a.m. until you're done. So 16 hours in, I, I tested for level three the first time. Yeah. Um, and they stood on me on my head and told me everything that I didn't know about um, running high-level magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, you're not quite ready yet, but you will be. <laughs> uh, and it was a little while later. That was 97. So the next big event I went to was GP Antwerp. Mm-hmm. And tested and passed level three, which was a bellwether day for the Magic Judge program because that day, not only me, but Jop Brower and Geese Hogendijk also made level three. And of course, all of us eventually made level five. Yeah. Okay, so how do you go from being a, like a level three judge to at some point you're actually the head judge of Pro Tours? How, what's that transition? Um, well... It was pretty. It was a pretty bloodless coup. I mean, I, I didn't bump anybody off. Um, so, I, I mean, the, we were we were really at that point. I started regularly judging pro tours. So, uh, while I was still in Europe, I was doing the European ones, European and the big European championships. And then I came back to the states in two thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came back to the states in April of two thousand then turned around and went back to Belgium <laughs> where I was living previously just months earlier to do world. Oh, the world championship. <laughs> to do the world championships. Um, That's the one that, uh, by the way, John Finkel defeats Bob Marr yeah. in the final. Like one of the classic all time, fi- yeah. uh, world championships. Yeah. 
Uh, oh man, those were, those were days. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, you know, it, like anything, when you get involved and, uh, you have a, you have the right skill set and the right desires to, to get promoted, to, to study, to do the things you, ne- you need to do. Um, I did, I mean, being, being a military NCO, I already had all the leadership skills that I needed. I didn't, you know, the judge program didn't need to teach me those. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just needed to teach me how to use them in the context of the program. And we were really, in, we were inventing the judge pr- program as we went along at that point. I mean, we had been doing pro tours for, you know, by the time Worlds 2000, we'd been doing pro tours for four or five years, but it was still, everyone was different. There, you know, there wasn't, consistent structure. And I think Mike Guptill and Matt Fairbanks sort of led the charge to standardize how we ran pro tours from at least a judge staff um, perspective. Uh, So I got involved with them and that, uh, and then got promoted to the level four a couple of years later, uh, which is an additional set of responsibilities. Um, uh, By then I was one of the, I was one of the level threes because back then, like Jeff Donay just head judged the Pro Tours. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just Jeff. Um, that nobody else did. And there was a list. You had to be a level four to head judge a GP. Yeah. And there was a list of level threes that were allowed to head judge GPs. And I think the list was me. Yeah, that was, I think the list was me. <laughs> you were really. <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, you know, at some point, Andy Hecht, who was running, who was the, you know, judge program manager. So it's like, you know, you probably want to interview for level four. So my level four interview was, I think, in San Diego, I want to say, um, with Andy and Colin Jackson. Uh, and uh, then we had, the, we, we had the New World Order after World San Francisco in 2004, where... Jeff was gone mm-hmm. and we needed to, we needed to do something different. Uh, you know, we need to not rely on, you know, there's a single, single failure point mm-hmm. that right there, you know, what happens if the one person who does your thing gets sick yeah, um, or burns out or whatever it is. So uh, it, as part of the new world order, there were six of us promoted to level five and the, the basically that meant, there were six people that could head judge pro tours now. So, uh, and go ahead, go ahead. Go now, go ahead. Uh, one of the things that I, I've been trying to do with this podcast is introduce uh, magic players to a lot of different areas of magic, uh, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the judge program. So, I just could you give maybe just a minute to talk about if someone out there might be interested in the judge program. What, what, how, how does one do that? How does one get? In, how does one become a judge? Well, I'm going to tell you. Uh, remember that I retired from the judge program in 2011. Okay. So my my retirement from the judge program is approaching is approaching being old enough to drink. Yeah. Um. So uh, the the judge academy now runs things. Uh. So you would have to get in contact with them. Uh, I'm actually not sure what the process is anymore. I, I'm, uh, I'm I'm a little <laughs> less concerned about the actual how do you do it, I guess, and more of why would someone want to do this? What what what. Well, why is judging fun? Why 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 might someone look into judging? For for me, it was about it was about being a valuable member of the community. It was about giving back to the community that was giving me fun. And you know, um, the same reason I got involved in in 
GMing D&D games for the RPGA is somebody needs to do it. You know, it one out of seven people had to be a GM in order for events to happen. So some people have to step up and there are, there are those of us who like stepping up. So I did. And judging was pretty much the same. It, you know, it, it becomes giving back to the community that you're involved in. And I mean, it's a pretty good job helping other people to have fun. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you get to meet more people, you get to travel, you know, there, there are certain, there were certainly side benefits, but even if you're just a level one judge at your own, at your local store, you're involved in the community and communities build and communities are better when people want to be in them. You know, you don't want hostages, uh, you want participants and the judge program uh, teaches skills, gets you involved in the community and helps you do the thing that you love. So that's the reason to get to be a judge is that you get to do more of something that you like to do. Okay, so we're going to segue here because okay. we've been talking a lot about what I'll call the first half of your sort of magic life. <laughs> right. Let's get into the second half of your magic life. So let's talk about the origins of Commander. Well, you know, I've never talked about this on a podcast before, so I'll have to, I'll have to check my notes. <laughs> uh, I, was stationed in, I was stationed in Alaska. Uh, at Elmendorf Air Force Base, and I had a really good group of nerd friends. And we would uh, get together at our, my friend David's apartment every Monday night. Uh, the place to be, he called it. And we would do nerdcore things. We would uh, play video games. Uh, Hot Shots Golf, I think, was on the, on the PlayStation 1. Was, <laughs> you know, like, was, was the fun game. We'd watch films. We'd play board games. Everybody was, by then, everybody was already deeply involved in magic. You know, one of our group owned um, a coffee shop in the mall, and that's where we played Friday Night Magic. So we'd go down to Aaron, Aaron Martin's store to, to play Friday Night Magic um, because I was, the, I, was the organi- I was the organizer in Alaska. Um, so... One of the one time we I went over to David's and they were playing some magic and I'm like so what's going on like oh we're playing this format that that Staley Adam Staley came up with although Adam might have cribbed it from something else mm-hmm. uh, and it's called Elder Dragon Highlander and you have one of the Elder Dragons is your is your general. And the Elder Dragons are the five Elder Dragons from Legends. That's all the ones that existed at the time. Yes. Um, Nicole Bolas being the most famous still. Um, And they're like, uh, there really aren't too many rules, except you can only have cards that are in the colors of your general. So everybody was playing a wedge Mm -hmm. or shard, I guess. and there was an agreement, there wasn't a rule, but there was an agreement to play no non-basic land hate because of everything was singleton then. There was, even basic lands were singleton. Okay. And in, you know, this is 2002, there weren't a lot of great non-basic lands, mm-hmm. right? To fill out to fill out 37, right. 38 de- lands in a deck, it was hard. So everybody just agreed no non-basic land hate. Mm-hmm. And... I looked at it once. I was like, okay, seems fun-ish. And then 
the following week they were there playing it again and I took a deeper look. Like, all right, all right, let me look at this. Let me think about the possible. So I, I, I went back home. I thought about the possibilities. Like, okay, here are some things that have to, would have to change to make this a viable format. But again, these are, you know, my friends were pretty casual magic players for the most mm-hmm. part, right? They didn't have the 10,000 foot view about right. how things operate and how formats work. Yeah. They just, you know, to them, a format was you're allowed to play these cards. So uh, there were a couple of changes that I, I insisted that we make right away. And uh, one was you had to let more than five people play because yeah. at the time, everybody had one of the Elder Dragons and that was it. That, right. It was five people. We expanded that, but you still had to reserve your general mm-hmm. at that point. Okay. Uh, so if I, you know, if I picked uh, Martin Stromgold as mine, Mm-hmm. Not only could nobody else play Martin Stromgold as their as their general, but nobody else could have Martin Stromgold in their deck. So, when did it go from just Elder Dragons to any legend? Um, in theory, early two thousand, late two thousand two or early two thousand three. But the real the the real acceleration point came after I left Alaska. Mm-hmm. So i I left Alaska in March two thousand three to go to Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. And by then, I was already a reasonably popular writer on Star City Games. Mm-hmm. And a couple of folks who had read my stuff that lived to, you know, near where I was going contacted me, said, hey, we have, a, we have a gaming group. If you want to come play Magic with us, come on by. We draft and we, you know, we play Standard and so forth and so on. And we play board games. And I was like, oh, I'm you know, going to go into another group of cool people just like adults. So I went and uh, got involved with them, played with them a couple of times. And then one, one time I said, so next week there's this format that I brought with me from Alaska. And um, I described it like you, you want to give that a try. And everybody said, sure. So everybody went home and built a deck that week and came back the following Sunday and we played and had fun, and then, you know, the next week we played some other format, and, you know, and it's a couple of weeks, and somebody suggested, I think it was Justin Norris, said, hey, that dragon thing, can we play that again? Like, yeah, sure. So we started playing it more regularly, and within, I'd say, six weeks or two months, it was all anybody wanted to play. Mm-hmm. So then I realized, okay, this might be something more than just for us. Let me think about bringing it to a broader audience. Okay. So I uh, wrote an article about it in April 2004. Okay. Which got quite some good feedback. Now, by this mm-hmm. time, by this time, I changed a number of things. Um, the the concept of actually banning cards was one. Because mm-hmm. the original the original Alaska's group had the same. Basically, everybody had the same um, strategy. Mm-hmm. Play bio rhythm and win. Sure. <laughs> uh, at the time, your your general was started in your deck. Okay. And which made no sense. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, so this in, was in your deck. You didn't start out of play. No. Okay. No, just in your deck, you had to draw it. Okay. Or two or two to four or whatever. Right. Uh, the only rule that the only rule actual rule that was in place was the color you know the color your cards rule and the twenty one damage. So okay. three hits from. Right, the command, commander damage. Commander damage. Right. 
those were basically the only rules. Uh, I realized, obviously, we need more. The first thing is we got to get rid of the singleton on the basic lands. Otherwise, right. nobody's ever going to be able to play it. Sure. Um, you know, fast forward, fast forward 17 years, most commander decks are full of non-basic lands. Sure. But <laughs> different <laughs> argument, right? Yeah. Uh, so change the, the non-basic land thing, ban some cards, um, and I thought that the first thing I, you know, I'd said for a couple of years, for many years, that the first change I ever made was the, the non-basic land or the, yeah. the basic land thing. But it was really getting the commander out of the deck. Yeah. Like it makes no sense for the commander to start in the deck if he's, right. if it's your thing. So that's when we started working on, okay, how do we, how do we make that work work? Yeah. Uh, so... So once the the good good response came from the Star City article, then I was like, I'm taking this to the Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it to my judge friends at Pro Tour, and uh, you know, because some of them were the were the respondents. Yeah. So we, I took it to Pro Tour, and it was touching Tinder to uh, touching a match to dry Tinder, mm-hmm. uh, and the judge community adopted it really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And by that world's in San Francisco in 2004, we did a 11 or 12 player free for all, which also taught me a thing or two about cards that needed to get rid of, we needed to get rid of in the format. Yeah. Uh, uh, power, the power nine being one of them. Sure. Uh, uh, so by, you know, by the, by the end of that year, by, by the end of that same year, mm-hmm. it's already starting to catch fire across the judge program. So this is 2004, judges, right? 2004, yeah. Okay. Judges being the primary evangels of magic. Yeah. Not just, you know, not just commander, but magic in general. They're, they're infusing things into their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I think the next significant event is probably again at a pro tour, and after after the day, mm-hmm. uh, we're rearranging some tables to play some to play some EDH, and Scott Scott Larrabee, um, dear friend of mine and now fellow RC member, yeah, a long time long time Wizards employee who yeah, yeah. who yeah, like, isn't he like he's like fourth or fifth on the tenure list at the company now? He's high up. I'm not, I'm not sure the number. <laughs> Um, um, he's behind me, yeah, Bill and Charlie. I know that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, yeah. I mean, he's the pro tour manager, and yeah. he comes by. He's like, "Let's go get something to eat." And I'm like, oh, "We're we're just about to start a game. A game of what?" So I explain. He's like, "Oh, okay." And then the next show, I think, was pro tour Atlanta, mm-hmm. and. So basically the same thing happening. Hey, let's go get something to eat. It's like, let's play, we're starting to play a game. He's like, okay, give me a deck. So I handed him my Lord of Tressorhorn deck, mm-hmm. and he sat down and played with us. He's like, oh, you can play this card? Oh, you can play that card? Oh, you can play that card? Mm-hmm. And he got hooked, mm-hmm. and he then brought it back to the offices and infected a few notable people. Mm-hmm. I think the, the primary the primary one being Aaron Forsyth. Mm-hmm. And it started spreading inside the company mm-hmm. like it was spreading outside the company. Yeah. 
So 2005, I think it's when we made the first Commander. Is that right? When did we release the first Commander? Right? No, the product? Yeah. No, was that, was not, that much like the, oh, sorry. The Commander the RC didn't, didn't form until... 2000. Oh, 2008? When, when, was the first, when did we first do it? When did Wizards first no, make? 10. 2010? I think we started making it in 2009. I think it was released 2011. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it, went, it went on for a while before we, we, yes. we, we started making a product. Yeah, well, I remember, I remember being at, the, at an event and Scott taking me and Gavin aside uh, and saying, so I think they want to make products and like for us <laughs> yes well i mean the, uh, originally so for, for the audience um we have what's called an innovation slot uh you know conspiracy uh battle bond uh the unsets it's just like we're trying something new and different and one year we said let's try commander as our innovation product yep um and the idea was it was a one of you know, you know we just do different things um, and it was so popular that we just said, why don't we just make one of these every year? I mean, we, it took, we worked two years ahead, so we had right. a gap year where we, we made a quick reprint thing. Uh, but yeah. two years That's after done. that product, yeah. we just started doing it every year. Yep. Um, so what is that like? So talk about a little bit of the, tra- the transition from, you know, Elder Dragon Highlander to Commander. Um, we had to, we had to give it another name for a bunch of reasons, but, um. Yeah, for a bunch <laughs> of reasons. Uh, so the, I mean, the. The point that certainly the idea of producing the product is a is another acceleration point. Um, we had formed Gavin Duggan had come to me in who was a level three judge and a net rep uh, Canadian um, uh, regional coordinator came came to me uh, and said, we, you know, we we should probably formalize this. You know, you're we're doing a lot of things in events. Why don't we? make a rules committee and blah, 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 you know, and publish things officially. So it's actually Gavin's idea to form the RC. Mm-hmm. And what, what, uh, uh, the RC is the, the, the commander of the rules committee yeah. is the, is the administrative body for the format. We're the ones who decide what cards to get banned and unbanned and manage the, and manage the format um, outside of any internal um, influence. So, you know, we, we remain an independent body. I mean, we were just a group of fans back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're just a group of big fans. Um, so we formalized in 2006. And uh, to make a relatively long story kind of short, um, one of the, orig- the original third member, Gab- um, uh, Duncan McGregor, went on to do other things. Like, uh, okay, we probably need somebody else. Eventually, Scott... And Toby Elliott, one of my level five compatriots uh, and a uh, pretty rulesy person, uh, joined. So that's the the four of us. The four of us have been together on the Commander Rules Committee. There have been some uh, some other folks on it, and have left to other things. Kevin Dupre being probably the most notable. Um, since I think I think we Scott was the last one we added in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the four of us have been together ever since managing the format and bringing it, sort of shepherding it into the new eras, each successive new era mm-hmm. of popularity. Yeah. Like the, the, the first part was, the first part was, oh, well, they're going to make product. We, we must be a thing. But I'm like, come on, it's, this is a niche format. It's never going to be 
it's never going to be any, you know, like standard. Nobody's yeah. going to, you know, but there aren't, there aren't that many people. And then once the product came out, I think we hit a pretty serious knee in the curve, um, w- which, which I had a kind of an epiphanous moment on doing a search on one of the engines, mm-hmm. um, uh, whatever, whatever Scryfall used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and co- commander color identity was one of the clickable search parameters. Yeah. And I kind of threw up my hands. I was like, okay, we've arrived. Uh, and I mean, and again, the, the acceleration has continued for the last, you know, seven or eight years. Yep. Uh, to see, to see something that you, that you created and shepherded and nurtured become wildly popular. Um, I mean, I think, I think you understand the same thing that, that, you know, that I, that I feel right something something small because magic was pretty small in the beginning yeah uh become become so big and so beloved by so many people it's a it's a pretty humbling moment it's it's something it's like man what how cool is it that i get to help a lot of people have some enjoyment in their life that's pretty cool (laughs) it's pretty cool as jobs as jobs go, <laughs> so I realize we're I, I'm almost uh, I'm almost to work. Um, oh my goodness! I know it's uh, my 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 travel to my desk. Um, so <laughs> as we wrap up here, I, I just want to, like I said, if for, maybe for someone who's never played uh, Commander before, um, what just a, a little final pitch of what what is it? If you something to give it a try, Commander, unlike unlike any other magic format, Commander is about making sure that that you help sculpt the resonant experience for everybody at the table. Uh, Commander is the closest to an RPG that we get to when we play Magic. Um, I, I think that that it's not about the competition. It's about the community. You know, Magic is about the gathering. Well, at a Commander table, the gathering is always present. And the it's it's the format where you can express yourself artistically and not have to worry about playing the best deck or the best metagame matchup or, you know, any of the things that come along with competitive magic. Um, it was intended from the beginning. Uh, one of my, one of my hopes and dreams was that, that commander would be a respite from competitive magic. I love competitive magic. I made my bones in competitive magic and the, there, there was a market and a way bigger market than I ever expected um, for people who want that same kind of resident experience. Uh, who wins doesn't matter. Something awesome happening is what matters. And those are the kind of games that we, that we encourage, that we help foster, that we try to create. And, you know, for, Commander is the only format that has a philosophy. Mm-hmm. And you, I, I think that that's the, the, the elevator pitch is, you're going to sit down and you're going to play a game that you love in a fashion with other people who love it the same way. And, you know, we're going to create memories and people don't, people don't remember, Oh, you know, I played Armageddon and won. 
people remember something stupid happening. Uh, and, you know, when somebody played tooth and nail and uh, entwined and somebody else mirror weaved every creature on the battlefield into a suture priest. Mm-hmm. Right. That's those are the things that we remember. Uh, so Commander creates memorable games and it, it creates games that you're going to remember for a long time. Okay, well, I think that's a great pitch. So for everybody out there who's never had a chance, um, obviously there's lots of places we sell a lot of product that are Commander products. <laughs> um, it, it is not a format you've really been familiar with. It's something to check out. And like I said, it's, it is, it's been growing like wildfire for years. So it is. Yeah. I, I believe right now, according to our research, um, of the people we can monitor, so there's a lot we can't monitor, but of the people that we can monitor, we believe right now it's the most played format. Um, uh, I mean, other than kitchen, what I'll call kitchen table magic or play with what you own magic, which is kind of right. probably the actual most popular way to play. But right. beyond that, when you're playing an actual structured format, we, we do believe it's the most popular way to play right now. So so thank you, Sheldon. Uh, thank yeah. you for, for uh, all you've done, both in judging and what in helping shepherd this format to uh, a large audience. But I've gotten to my desk. So we all know that means means this is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So thank you for joining us so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys. I will see you next time. Bye-bye.